my background being bicultural actually provides me not only the humility to know that Christianity is not based in one particular country or one particular area, that Christianity is a global religion. Hello, and welcome to Working with me, Dan Doriani, hosting a podcast where we explore faith, work, culture, and the way believers can make a difference in their corner of the world. My guest today is Julius Kim. He's the head of one of the premier Christian organizations of our time, the Gospel Coalition. It reaches millions and millions of people every year, principally through its website. Julius is also a cheerful man, a family man, and also a man who almost died of COVID a couple years ago. So today, my guest is my friend Julius Kim, who's the president of the Gospel Coalition, the author of a couple books. The most notable of them is Preaching the Whole Counsel of God, a well-respected book that came out in 2015 on the preaching enterprise before he became the president of Gospel Coalition. He was a professor and a dean at Westminster Seminary in Escondido. He's also got a lot of pastoral experience He's also a funny and very engaging and very gifted man, and so I'm glad to have him uh, submitting to these questions and part of our podcast today. Welcome, Julius. Thank you so much, Dan. It's my privilege to be with you. It's always a joy. Yeah. Um, so I'm just going to start right away with uh, President of Gospel Coalition. It's a very big organization, has a reach of tens of millions of people every year. It takes a bold man to follow in the footsteps <laughs> of the founders, very famous and and kind and godly and you know hardworking and humble men, Tim Keller and Don Carson, both of whom, by the way, did this sort of at a part-time volunteer basis. And they, they said, here, here, Julius, would you take what both of them did together? What enabled you to say yes? to the presidency of Gospel Coalition, and a couple words about what that's like. Sure, I appreciate that. I think your first question was, what enabled me to take this role? Uh, simply put, God's grace and God's guidance in my life. I would not be where I am today, whether as a father, a husband, a pastor at my local PCA church, a professor and a dean for 20 years, uh, if not for the grace and guidance of God in my life, there's no doubt in my mind, but also for the grace and guidance of people like my wife and other important spiritual men that have really helped me over the years. But I think what I, when, I, when I was going through the process of, of interviewing for this position in, in the summer of 2019, I still recall thinking to myself, this is something that I, I never wanted, nor did I even desire, nor did I even, even dream about frankly. And so when, when the search committee contacted me to consider applying, in my, in my mind and in my heart, I said, no, that's not going to work. But my policy has always been when godly people, especially godly men like a Tim Keller or a Don Carson or others who are on that search committee, invited me to consider because my name was somebody that they thought would be a good fit to go through the process. I do what I always do over the years, which is to pray for two weeks with my wife, with my senior pastor at the church where I currently serve and I'm a member of. It's called New Life Presbyterian Church in Escondido, California, and also with my dad. And so the four of us prayed and prayed, and I just asked them, I said, just give me what what, what you sense. Do you think I have the mm. right gift mix? Uh, is this the right opportunity? Is this the right time? Is this the right place? And in my mind, I thought, no. But as I began to pray, 
I developed a burden. And then that burden turned into excitement and then a possibility. And so then after the two weeks was over, I asked, you know, my wife, my pastor, my dad, what do you all think? And they said, we don't know if this is the right position for you, but we do know this. We believe you ought to go through the process because sometimes just going through the process of considering a new call can be really helpful for you to take kind of that kind of spiritual inventory of where you are and are you really serving the Lord to your great to the greatest capacity. And as I went through that process, it was really enlightening in multiple ways. It helped me to see the unique skills, experiences, and opportunities uh, that I've been given over the last 30 years of ministry, whether in the church, the local church, I pastor as an associate pastor, to my parenting and my family and my in my life as I'm 29 years in marriage now and then at the seminary as a teacher and as a dean. And it seemed like all of that was preparing me for this role because I think this role requires uh, the wisdom to balance all of those things, mm. the kind of commitment and love that a father and a husband would have to his family, that no matter how hard, no matter what you go through, once you commit, you do it. Or the kind of pastoral shepherding that you need as a leader to, to shepherd and pastor a staff and a council uh, of, of very godly leaders, pastors like yourself who are on, I'll serve on the council, but also required kind of what I would call kind of executive leadership, like management leadership that, that I've learned over the years in the pastorate as well as as a dean, and also theological leadership, you know, understanding your convictions, being able to articulate them well, to teach others. Um, so it just seemed as though all the unique, necessary things were part of my life. It's like, huh, yeah. I never expected this, God, but it seems like this is what you want me to do. And so having done it now two years, <laughs> that's, a, that's a different question, Dan, is like, right, yeah. has it been easy? Has it been hard? That's a different question. But I would say um, I knew at that time that that was the right position to at least start the process. And then as the process went on, the board finally decided that I was uh, the best fit. Um, it seemed like this is where God wants me. So let me just label a couple things because this is a podcast about work. Mm-hmm. The question is, how do you discern God's will if it's time for change? And, and one answer is you pray. You pray with wise people. You pray with people who are fearless, who will tell you what they think, right? And, uh, and you also take an inventory, and you ask the question, am I using my gifts as widely and as well as I could, given every, all, not only my abilities, I hear you say, not only my abilities, but also the experiences, the diverse experiences I've had. In your case... It was a diverse set of experiences that that mirrored what Gospel Coalition needed. And so you took the position. That's great. Now I'm going to ask you another question about this. So uh, Gospel Coalition is a very international ministry, and it's in a couple dozen countries now and expanding. And so, you know, places like Australia and India and, of course, England and America, but also Brazil and Spain and, you know, it's in Mandarin and Arabic and Farsi and Korean— and uh, you're a Korean-American. You were born in America. Did some of you growing up in Korea and then came back around the age of 12, if I have it right? That's correct. And then you've lived in America the rest of your life. Do you feel like you're a, uh, a one-person, multi-ethnic <laughs> leader? You're Korean, you're American. Does that help you as the leader of Gospel Coalition to be able to say, I'm doubly ethnic, right? Yeah, at the risk of sounding 
proud, in, uh, but I don't think that's it. I really think as Christian leaders, uh, God gives us the opportunity to reflect upon the unique histories, the unique ethnicities, the unique experiences that we've been given, ultimately for the glory of God and for the good of his church and world. And again, as I think about this current moment at TGC and what TGC has this opportunity to do, to be a unifying organization around the gospel and not around politics, for example, right. or not around other issues that are important, but clearly secondary. And I believe that my background being bicultural actually provides me not only the humility to know that Christianity is not based in one particular country or one particular area, uh, that, that Christianity is a global religion because God himself is global. God created the world and God is doing amazing things around the world. In fact, you know the statistics, Dan. I mean, Christianity is growing in places more fast than places like the global south in South right. America, Africa, and Asia. And that global Christians reside in, you know, 65% or so reside outside of North America. Right. And so it would be the height of arrogance and ignorance to somehow think that the U.S. church is really the center of Christendom. We like to believe that, and sometimes we act like that. Uh, but um, it's, it's to our shame, and I think much right. to our dismay. And so for me, being both Korean and American, and what's interesting, Dan, is that on the one hand, I never have fully felt American, and I've never fully felt Korean. Yes. When I travel to Korea at least once a year, I don't quite fit in. Right. I understand the culture. I can speak the language. I can get by. But I know that there's, some, there's a part of me because of my history and my background, my upbringing, that I'm slightly different. So I don't really belong. And then I come back to America and, oh, finally, I'm back home. Yeah, but you don't then I encounter, yeah. yeah, then I encounter discrimination, prejudice. Right. Not because I have an accent. In fact, for those of us listening to this podcast, you, you may not even know that I'm Asian because I don't have right. an Asian accent. Right. And yet because you, of the way I look. California accent. That's right. That's a good accent, though. <laughs> a Southern California accent is a good accent. Right. But for most people, I still encounter discrimination and prejudice because of the way I look. Yeah. And so I, throughout my upbringing, I'm 54 now, I never really belonged in the U.S. either. And then for a long time, that used to sadden me. You know, I, that makes sense. As a human, I, I'm sad that I don't, I don't really have a home. But then I thought about it. What a privilege to not belong to either Korea or America because I belong to another celestial city. Right. That I'm just a pilgrim. Right. Um, on this journey, figuring out, Lord, how can I be utilized by you in this already not yet existence to do my best to help other people along the way on their pilgrim journey? Yeah, I appreciate that. Although, you know, yeah. what's funny is that uh, this, this line you're giving, and I don't question it at all, is something that shows up in a variety of people when I interview them. <laughs> they, they say, I don't quite belong. Hmm. And these could be people who maybe uh, grew up in Iowa and live in Iowa. Yeah, and there's this um, this this pilgrim life that we all have, and I, I think sometimes maybe you would agree with me that that we need to seize those opportunities to make the point real to ourselves that we'll never fully belong in any culture, even if you've lived in Connecticut your entire life or you know Sao Paulo your entire life, we're always somewhat of a misfit. As a Christian, it's inevitable because. You know, we're not going to find all the jokes funny. We're not going to find all the entertainments entertaining and, and so on. So you, you kind of have an extra boost or an extra opportunity to think about that. 
Absolutely. And I think for, for an organization like TGC, as we're trying to think about this opportunity God has given to us to be a global gospel-centered movement of like-minded you know, leaders around, around the scriptures and around the gospel, I think it does help me make the best kinds of decisions beyond kind of my, whether it's Connecticut or California, right? you know, wherever we're based, we want to make the most wise, thoughtful, trusted, you know, decisions on behalf of the gospel and, and knowing that it's okay not to belong, but while we're here, let's do the best that we can for God's glory, wherever God places us. So being a pilgrim is a good thing. Yeah. You know, I think it's hard. I'm going to ask you a, another hard question. Last time we were together at some length, we had a conversation about the fact that not all that long after you became the president of Gospel Coalition, you got a very severe case of COVID. And this was in the early going before people knew exactly how to treat COVID and people who were relatively young. I mean, you were 52 at the time, I guess. And uh, you're a pretty healthy guy. Uh, relatively young, relatively healthy, could get deathly ill. And... Um, you faced the possibility. I mean, you you were on your bed thinking, all right, I may meet the Lord quicker than I thought I would. You're, you're fine now. You look healthy. You are healthy. What did you learn from facing the limitations, the finitude, the brevity of life in that period of time? Yeah, yeah. I learned a lot, Dan, but I would say what would be the most helpful, I think, for us um, in this conversation, I would say I learned the importance of priority and proportion. And let me try to explain. Yeah. I learned the importance of prioritizing what God wants me to prioritize. And it took a disease, a virus that almost took my life for me to take more, more inventory, right? That kind of spiritual inventory. And then, so when you're lying in bed thinking, my, you know, I had a good friend, an ER doctor that was helping me kind of process and he basically said, Julius, you could either go one of two directions right now. If it gets any worse, you will probably die. Mm. But you can also get better and then you'll be fine. That's how much I know based on the thousands of patients that I've seen in the ER. So that's not the kind of thing you want to hear, but it's, no. it's an important thing to hear. And it's good to hear it from a friend. Right. And, and, a, and a friend who loves me and cares for me and was crying for me and praying for me. Uh, but he also wanted to be honest. And, and at that moment, you, you start thinking through your life and think, what's the most important things in my life? Was it making, getting that promotion? Was it getting that publication? Was it pleasing that person? Or was it loving God well and loving my family and church well? And for me, uh, as, as a professor, as a writer, as a speaker, as a, a pastor, you know, the only thing I can think about is, Lord, have I been faithful to you in loving you well and loving my family and church well? And for me, that was just a real clarifying moment in my life, to be honest. And it probably has helped you to have, I mean, nobody ever wants to get sick to the point of death, of course, but you probably had a beneficial lesson because as president of Gospel Coalition, you could fly around the country and fly around the world and, hey, honey, how you doing? Kiss, kiss, bye-bye. I'll be on the road again. And, of course, you've got two daughters, uh, 21 and 19, and they were in their last little bit of time either in home or near home. I probably grounded you for the next several years. No doubt. No doubt, Dan. And probably as as someone who have also experienced challenges of life and, and learning from that, 
I'm sure you can also attest to those moments, that, those clarifying moments that then gives you some foundational priorities of what's really important that then help you proportion your gifts and energies, your time, talent, and treasure in the right ways. Right. And so that meant that, that's, that's when I was able to say, you know what, even this job, as important as it is, this calling to be president of TGC, you know, for me, I, I, you know, as somebody, as a Korean American who's always been ambitious, Yes. One, because I was told by my immigrant parents, you need to be the top of your class. You need to get this. You need to have the, the best grades. You need to get to the best schools. And that's how you truly become an American. So as an immigrant, that's what I was taught. So even at an early age, you know, I was told to be, you know, these things became idols. Right. You know, from from grades to the school you go to, the kind of job you get, the money you make. And, and then in many ways, as somebody even in ministry, I'm, I'm not supposed to think that way. But right. I can't help it because I'm just a sinful human that's broken, that needs help. And so then you start going, wow, it seems like even for me, from a leadership point of view, I've kind of reached the, the pinnacle. Yes. You know, I, this president of TGC is a pretty big deal. Julius, you're a big deal. <laughs> and then you're about to die. And you're like, you're not <laughs> right. a big deal. Right? right. God doesn't need you. Kind of. We're, we're all replaceable. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And then my father, I remember during that time, reminded me. So Julius, do you remember 20 years ago when you started at the seminary? And you thought it was such a big deal. You're teaching at a seminary. You're becoming a professor. And in the Korean culture, being a professor is a big deal because you're, right. you know, culturally, just, you have so much influence over people. And there's a lot of, you know, the, you know, the, the, the honor that comes from that. And my dad said, Julius, I, I just want you to remember one thing. When you become a pastor, when you became ordained, and then now that you're a professor, you are not indispensable. God does not need you. This is hilarious in a way because it reminds me of what parents do. They tell their children, achieve, 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 achieve. And then the way they achieve, they go, yeah, you know, you didn't do all that much. Don't, <laughs> don't, don't. And of course, your parents might not have said the words, achieve, right. achieve. I remember when I was- And in, they didn't, yeah. But there was that pressure. Right. You know, I, at one point, I was I had a next door neighbor who was not a great student who was my age, and we did a lot of things in common. And he would get so much money for every A and so much money for every B. <laughs> and I go, Dad, you never give me anything for getting straight A's. He goes, They don't expect him to get straight A's. I expect you to get straight A's. There's nothing to brag about here. <laughs> That's you don't right. Need a reward for this. Sure. I want to be clear here. My parents were, my parents were wonderful. Yes, they sound uh, like it. And helpful. Yeah. It sounds like if he's your prayer partner all these years, I'm just, I'm not saying this to critique your dad. I'm actually thinking of, um, you know, you're a dad and I'm a dad. You're dedicated to your daughters. I'm dedicated to mine. And it's really easy to think you're doing a great job as a dad and you're accidentally, con you know, conveying ideals or goals that are hard to live up to. For sure. Even if you'd never thought you were laying a burden on your child, we're all imperfect. Well, hey, I'm going to take a, we're going to take a tiny break and we're going to refocus. We're going to go to your work um, on preaching because you're a preacher and an author about preaching. So when we come back, Julius Kim, president of Gospel Coalition, that's what we've been talking about so far, but also the author of a very well-respected book, Preaching the Whole Counsel of God, uh, we'll be back and we're going to talk about the preaching enterprise for a few minutes. The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals is a coalition of believers who hold the historic creeds and confessions of the Reformed faith and proclaim biblical doctrine in order to foster a Reformed awakening in today's church. What all that means is we care about the church, we care about truth, and work hard to preserve and advance it every day. 
Connect with our broadcast, podcast, publishing, internet, and event platforms at workingwithdan.org. Thank you for your prayerful and financial support of the Alliance. Okay, we're back with Julius Kim, the president of Gospel Coalition, the author of the book, Preaching the Whole Counsel of God. Extremely wise, well-written, accessible, helpful book. And you can get some copies of that. We're giving away a few copies of that on our website. And we'll tell you more about that when the interview is over. Julius, tell us, first of all, what does it mean to preach the whole counsel of God? That's obviously from the Bible. Paul preached the whole counsel of God. But in that book, what do you mean by preaching the whole counsel of God? Why is it important enough that you made it the title of your book? Yeah, I appreciate that. It, it has multiple meanings, but it did come from Acts chapter 20, when Paul talks about his own ministry, his own preaching and teaching ministry, was fundamentally making sure that as a herald of the king, one who represents the king of kings, he's going to be faithful to declare, to pronounce, to proclaim what God wants to be pronounced and proclaimed. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, it's not even our message. It's someone else's message. We've been entrusted with a message. And that message doesn't just come from one book of the Bible. It actually comes from the whole Bible. And so part of my goal in, 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 in titling the book that way is to remind would-be preachers, would-be teachers, would-be Bible study leaders, that part of our task is to ensure that we're faithfully and accurately, but also winsomely representing the Lord and all that he has declared from Genesis to Revelation. Now, let me take you one, one more step. Not only are we to accurately declare it, but in order to do that, we need to interpret it well, but also communicate it well. And so this book really has two really divisions to help those who want to represent the Lord well and heralding his message from Genesis to Revelation. You need to, it's not easy to interpret all these various writings. And as you know, the originals in Hebrew and Greek, and it comes from multiple periods of time, millennia, different languages, even Aramaic in one small portions and, and over a a large chunk of geography and time. And there's so much diversity that we need to do a lot of work to ensure that when the Lord gives us the message that he does in Hebrew from the land of Palestine or Saudi Arabia or even Egypt, that we need to interpret it well. But that's only half of what we're called to do. The other half is once you figure out what God is actually wanting you to say, you then need to communicate it in the best way possible to people that have a hard time hearing in a variety of ways, not only because of their own sin, but also because of limitations mm -hmm. uh, of their brain. And so, as you know, I have that chapter on brain science and how to best you know, communicate for maximum attention, retention, and integration, hopefully for the Holy Spirit's transformation. Mm -hmm. And so the book really is divided into those two big kind of buckets how do you interpret well? How do you communicate well? And so that ultimately you can represent the Lord well as his mouthpiece. And so that's really my goal. And I can, I can break those down a little bit even more. Well, well, let me ask you questions. Let me, yeah. You can lecture. I want to give and take, give and take. Ready? All right. So I'm going to ask you three questions you can answer. You can weave the answers together or take them one at a time, whatever you want. Helping people to listen. So I'm going to just offer a thought. My goal when I preach is to make my sermon comprehensible to an attentive 11-year-old, by which I mean by the time they're 12 or 13, you know, they're, they're not just sponges as much. So I'm, I'm saying, you know, somebody's really 
you know, bright and attentive and able to just receive information without a whole lot of bias, if you will, because 11-year-olds aren't as biased as 25-year-olds and 55-year-olds. You probably agree with that. So I want to make it easy to comprehend. But I also want to say uh, there are obstacles. You mentioned, I forget the word you used, but, you know, there are impediments. And what do you do not only to communicate with a good listener, but what do you do when you're, when it's tough? I mean, when the building is hot or when you're crying babies or when, you know, you look out and you've only been speaking three minutes and there's somebody in row three asleep. You barely got started. You just finished the scripture. Or there's somebody, maybe you're making an important point. You know, it's, it's important and you know it's challenging. And they're sitting there leaning back with their arms folded and they're, they're, they're kind of scowling at you a little bit. So that's two sides of communication. One is who do you aim for? Number two is how do you overcome a little bit of resistance or, or difficulties when you're preaching? You don't have to do both of them. Whatever you want to do with those. Yeah, those are great areas. questions. And, and as you can imagine, I could take any one of those in a 30-minute direction and talk about I know the various intricacies. And so what would be the most helpful, I think, for your listeners at this point? The first thing I would say is remember it's not about you. Right. No matter how hard you prepare, no matter what you do to, to become a master of your craft as a communicator, you could only do so much. So one of the things you could do is like, whether it's a crying baby or that person sleeping, is to try to anticipate, well, why that's the case. Mm. So I think a lot of preachers, a lot of pa- young pastors and preachers especially, don't actually think through intentionally, like making sure that the AC works, that the <laughs> yes, microphone yes. system is actually good, that yes. you don't sound like you're talking like this. Yes. You're just, those are s- s- wisdom issues that they don't even, like preachers like think, you know what, as long as... I'm representing God. It doesn't matter what microphone I use or how hot the room is. I'm like, no, it actually does matter. This is one of the things I love about your book. It has so much practical counsel that um, it's, it's really a masterful book for a young preacher, a young pastor who hasn't learned the hard way. It's like you keep them from making the obvious mistakes. I love that about the book. Yeah, and that, that was really my goal because as a young preacher myself who went through that, and, and having heard 20 years worth of, can I say this kindly, you know, about three, three to 4,000 mediocre sermons from my students mm-hmm. over the years, you learn a few, you, few, you learn a few things yes. about what makes them good preachers and what are, what are areas where I can coach them to become better. Right. Let's think about the simple things first, like anticipating the heat, how the, the, the microphone system works or the speakers, et cetera. But Another thing you can do is, I, I love your question. I love the fact that you're being very intentional about accessibility, right? Because whether it's 25, 50, or the 11-year-old, whatever age it is, you want to make sure that they're actually comprehending what you're saying. Right. And you actually have to be very intentional in asking yourself, as I explain this next point for the next minute or so, let's say you have to explain God's providence in the midst of suffering. Mm-hmm. That's a tough topic, but it's an important one. And you've got, you can't go forever on it. You're, and you it's, can't. It's not the main point of the sermon. Right? That's right. Yep. And so the fact that you're intentionally aiming for the 11-year-old mind and heart and life, mm-hmm. and you're thinking in her shoes, in her life, based in this context and culture, what, 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 what do I know about her? And this is where I think being a preacher has to be tied to being a shepherd. Unless you know that person, unless you know that 11-year-old, her background, her history, 
her likes, her dislikes, her struggles as well as her joys. Unless you know that, no matter how hard you try, you're not going to reach her. And so what that means is it implies relationship, a shepherding relationship. So for me, I always tell my students this, you know, it's not unlike raising your children. As you raise your children in the Lord, you're going to have plenty of opportunities to quote unquote preach to them. Right. You're, you're, you're taking the God's word and what it says in this kind of private moment with your kids. What is different about preaching, essentially? These are, these are really the spiritual children that God has placed into your care that you're supposed to love and die for. How do you best communicate to them? So that presupposes a relationship. And so I always tell my students, no matter how much you learn from my book, there are certain things that you will not learn until you die to yourself and learn to really love and shepherd your people. And that dynamic is really important. Yeah. So I hear you, I've heard you say several times, you know, you're a listener, you're a shepherd, you're a coach, you're like a dad a little bit at Gospel Coalition. And as a preacher, you're a little bit like a shepherd, a little bit like a father figure. I'm sure we agreed that you don't have to know all the 11-year-olds, but you have to know some 11-year-olds. And you don't have to know all the 44-year-olds, but you really do need to know some so you know what's going on in their life. And you and I also agree that, um, that there's an analogy always between being a good father and a good leader, right? That's why First Timothy says what it says. An elder is the husband of one wife, meaning a faithful husband, and he manages his own family well, and that enables him to manage and care for the church of God. So I'm with you on that. For sure. I want to take you in a, a slightly different direction in this. So I, I, I did warn, for listeners, I warned Julius in advance that, you know, I may, I don't know if I'm going to disagree, but I'm going to question him pointedly. How about that? So when I was reading uh, your book, I came to the section on how to prepare for a sermon. Um, it said, you know, give your message out loud and, you know, practice out loud and go over it several times to get a groove going so you can be really familiar with your words so you won't get stuck, uncertain of what to say next. You know what you're going to say next. You have a good idea. And because you went over it three, four, five times, maybe, maybe more, and have kind of come close to memorizing it, you're going to be okay if you're distracted or panic or something of that nature. And I thought to myself, that is, that is so antithetical to the way I prepare for a sermon. I tried to preach out loud in a church in my church when I was a brand new pastor, 22, 28 years old. I couldn't do it. It felt like the most absurd, preposterous, pretentious thing ever. I did it one time for three minutes, and I swore I'd never do it again, and I haven't. And I also don't go over my notes over and over. I, I my method is what I call preaching in a mild state of panic. And I get it from people like, you know, Calvin, who preached five times a week, would never have had time, Zwingli and other people, never would have had time to go over, prepare five sermons start to finish. But they were great scholars and had great minds. And they also want to connect. They didn't want to, Calvin was afraid, for example, he'd go over the heads of his people, which was a real danger for somebody like Calvin. And so he thought if he had his manuscript, it would be disastrous or, or problematic at least. And it, it apparently did help him. And so I thought, that's good. I like that approach. And, and I have way too many notes, and I don't know exactly what I'm going to say. And I, I just let it go, and I feel so much more alive. I feel so much more lively when I'm looking people in the eye. I'm not sure what I'm going to say next sometimes as opposed to being glued to my notes and worried about missing one of my 
killer insights that nobody, you know, don't miss. Here comes a killer insight, folks. Let me, let me read it to you now. That's uh, a conviction I have, and you, of course, are hardly surprised to hear that preachers who have some experience approach things like that sometimes. But you're going to stick by your guns that your way is a good way for a young preacher to start, and then maybe they shift as time goes by. And, and you know, if you can, say it in a way that would work for people who do public speaking and aren't preachers. Absolutely. Yeah. So again, I, I completely understand why someone like you would use the method you use when you prepare to give some sort of talk. Um, what would be interesting is to compare the way you speak now uh, and the effectiveness of it to when you were 28 years old. And my guess would be you're a much more effective speaker now because over the last, I don't know how old you are, I want to guess, in your late 50s, 30, early 60s. 37. I'm, I'm 30 yeah. soon. So only nine years of experience <laughs> preaching. But in that, in that nine years or 29 years, let's say, yep. you've learned a few things. You've experienced I, I a few so. things. Right. Yep. And along the way, you've probably even experienced some what I would call speaking bombs where like, wow, that did not go over too well. Well, I, or, I got the bombs when I had when I was too glued to my notes. Got it. Got it. Yep. So what I would say is, again, this book primarily and what I teach from it is really geared toward a primary audience of the young 20-something seminarian who's just learning how to really interpret and communicate well. Right. And for me, there's a certain level of clarity that's missing in people who talk nowadays, whether yes. you give a sermon, a political speech, or even asking a father, a father, a future father-in-law to get his daughter's hand in marriage. Whoa. Whatever the speech may be, I've seen a lot of failures. Yes. And, and I think that that coincides with, I think, our current educational system and the lack of our current educational system in America being unable to help people think critically and then organize their thoughts in a critical way and then articulate it in a comprehensive and yet compassionate way. And so, so can a I just coherent break in, way. Can yeah. I just break in real quick? So what you would say then is is that perhaps, if I'm, I'm extrapolating, that by forcing somebody to speak out loud, they realize that what I'm saying now can't really be followed very easily. That's exactly that the right. The act of saying it out loud reveals the flaws. And in fact, what I would say, exactly. Now, let me take it one step back. I actually forced my, I used to, when I taught the first year of preaching class, they had to first create an outline based on, you know, logic and linearity, based on thesis. What are you trying to prove? What's the goal you're trying to get to? And how do you how do each of your points, like on a stepping stone across a river, right. how does each point get you to your, your main argument? And then so they have to write an outline that has that kind of linearity and logic. Then they have to fill it out. And I actually make them write a whole manuscript right. for the ear, not for the eye. They know how to write research papers. That's really for the eye and not for the ear. And that's a different skill. So I teach them, write a manuscript for the ear, and then do the one more step, say it out loud. Yep. Because what you wrote, oftentimes very long, convoluted sentences, sentences. filled with jargon. And we want Too short, long. crisp, punchy, active sentences. That's exactly. As you, you. Know. As you know. As you know. Unless you're telling stories, stories a slightly different genre. Mm -hmm. Narrative is very different from propositional language, of course. But even then, you don't want long sentences. It's hard for the working memory in our right. brains to hold on to all that knowledge and somehow put it all together. 
So That's I forced right. them to do that. And what happens is they're like, wow, do I really sound that bad? And that's the exercise. Like, actually, yeah, yeah you do. And that's the love. That's an act of love. That's not I humiliating. I think so. Them. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I'm sure it is. I mean, you're, I have to say, you're a loving and kind guy, and you're doing it for the sake of the church as well as the pastor. Yeah, Absolutely. And so that's why I forced them to do those exercises. Now, and I tell them up front, I said, you know, there, there will be a day where you're going to have your own method, your own process right. of doing this. But I think, based on my 20 years of teaching this class, I think this is the, a good kind of foundational way to learn how to understand and maximize your own voice. That's what I mean. Like, even if you're a singer, if you're a singer, you're going to have to sing certain things early on that you're right. not, go through certain exercises early on in your career or in sports. You, you like sports. I'm sorry, but I'm going to make you dribble. I remember my daughter first learning how to play basketball. You have to dribble with your left. She's a right-handed. Yes. A hundred times. But dad, I'm never going to dribble a hundred times with my left hand in a game. You're right. I hope you <laughs> never do. That would be really weird. <laughs> and defensively, I could steal the ball from you every time. But in order then to have the dexterity to fool your defender, you need to be as good as your left as you are on your right. And so for me, all these things in the book... It's kind of like that. These are exercises to help you master your craft so that as you get better and more experienced, you can go, you know what? You know what really works for me is this. So, for example, I'll tell you what I do, Dan. I still write a full manuscript. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Yeah. But you would never know that because I go out of my way to think about what are those key moments when I have to make eye contact, right. when I have to change my speed, I have to lean in or lean out to signal emphasis so there are moments when I'm much more conversational, but all that is intentionally worked out in my mind before I get up there. That's great. That's great. Uh, Julius, we could go for a long time, but our, um, our time is near its end. And so I'm going to ask you rapid-fire questions. Now, the rule for the rapid-fire questions is 30 seconds, and then the gong goes off. All right? You got 30 okay. seconds. All right? You okay. can do the first one in less than 30 seconds. What book most changed your life other than the Bible? Early in my Christian life, Knowing God by J.I. Packer. Beautiful. Outstanding book. If you haven't read it, folks, read Knowing God by J.I. Packer. Number two, what do you do to play or to relax so you're not working all the time? I love the game of golf. Ah. And so golf is one of those things that I learned when I was very young. But when you're young and competitive, you, you become very angry. You become the angry golfer. Yes, yes. But when you, when, you be, when you get into your 50s, you're like, wow, I could be working right now. <laughs> but I'm out here enjoying this beautiful, beautiful Southern California weather. I'm here with one of my good friends, my pastor, my senior pastor, and I play regularly. And we're like, this is a beautiful game, and it's a beautiful time. So I love the game of golf. That's terrific. Um, all right, this is a harder question. What are you afraid of? Mm. I, yeah, this is a hard one, Dan. I'm, this is going to disappointing others. Mm. Yeah, I hear that. I think because of my immigrant upbringing and having a lot of expectations placed upon me in that unique bicultural experience, yes. being a people pleaser as I am, and, and, and that idolatry that I carry in my heart of wanting to please everyone, being liked, of taking on, be, being a leader, you know, there's, for me, there's a fear of disappointing people. 
and not just failure. I think failures. Failure is different. I failed at a lot of things. Yeah, yeah failures. Right. Dis- you know, disappointing yeah. those that you really care about and love and. And there's a healthy side of that. I mean, you don't want to disappoint people you respect and love and admire. And there's an unhealthy side of that. Yeah. And we're always hoping that we keep on the healthy side of that. That's exactly probably. right. Yeah. That's the All first right. thing that came to mind. I hate That's to admit good. it, but... I just want an honest answer. Um, I got two more questions for you. Question number one is, what would you like to celebrate in five years? More unity among gospel leaders in America. Mm, great answer. I love that answer. If I think you were probably tempted to say to see my daughters happily married to wonderful, godly Christian men, but I love your answer. Last question. If you could have any job for one year, any task, money's no object, geography's no object, what would you do for one year? I, I, actually, I can't think of anything else but what I'm doing right now, honestly. Oh, I love that answer. That's weird, but, you know, I know it's not weird. You know, I mean, there are a lot of things I enjoy doing, but I really feel like for those of us that want to be truly content in where God has placed us, um, I can't imagine doing anything else than what I'm doing right now. And I'll tell you, Dan, professionally, uh, alongside the personally, when I got really sick, that was really hard. Yes, sure. But I'd say professionally, this has been the two most difficult years of my life in this role. Yes, and I don't think that's a bad thing per se, but it's been really hard. And a lot of that's the external things that are happening in our country, in our world, but also internally with, with my own, like, why did I leave this cushy position at the seminary? Yeah, and right, I was tenured right. and I knew what I was doing. And like, it was a steep learning curve, but this is exactly where God wants me. And I'm seeing evidences of that every day. Praise God. That's and terrific. because of that, there's no, no, there's nothing else I would rather do, honestly. I love your answer, uh, and I loved having you on this program. Julius, it's always a pleasure to have an excuse to talk to you. In person is better because you're just a fun person, as everybody who knows you knows. But this will do for now till I see you next in a few months. Julius Kim, president of Gospel Coalition, author of a couple books, the one we're recommending to you, Preaching the Whole Council of God. It's been a delight to see you and have you on this podcast. Thank you so much, Dan Doriani, a big fan. Grateful for you, brother. We're thankful for today's guest and also extend special thanks to our sponsor, the Alliance for Confessing Evangelicals. Please check out their site, Reformation 21. That's the principal host of this podcast. If you want to put your faith to work and change your corner of the world, visit our website, the Center for Faith and Work St. Louis. Look for faithandworkstl.org. That's one word. We'll help you start a cohort with like-minded believers who also want to practice their faith at work. This podcast is donor-supported. To keep us going, please donate on our website. Maybe more importantly, you can support us by listening, by subscribing, by sharing, by liking us, by posting us on your favorite platform, or go old school and tell a friend.